This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio are Keith Mearns, who is Director of Grounds at the Historic Columbia Foundation here in Columbia, and John Shearer, who is Director of Preservation, also at Historic Columbia. We're going to talk about Historic Columbia past and present, but most especially the changes that have been made to the grounds and the interpretation of the property over the last decade or so. So, gentlemen, welcome to the Journal. Thank you for having us. All right, let's talk a little bit about you for just a second. Keith, who are you, where are you from, and who are your folks? <laughs> I, am, I am a first-generation uh, South Carolinian. My parents moved here from up north, but I was born here in Columbia, uh, went to school here, and had sort of a different career before I came to horticulture. What did you do? Well, I actually was a professional ballet dancer, huh. along with my sister, until my mid-20s or so. And then I uh, turned to uh, horticulture, which had always been a non-professional passion of mine. So where did you get your horticultural education? So, somewhat uh, non-traditionally, I would say. Um, I went back to school at USC uh, in anthropology, in fact, uh, in environmental studies. But while there, I ended, wor- ended up working with um, Dr. John Nelson at the herbarium at USC, oh, yeah. um, TAing for him, and then uh, some uh, really excellent work up at an heirloom farm in Little Mountain, South Carolina, and through all those experiences, ended up at Riverbanks Botanical Garden for two years before I came to Historic Columbia. Were you working with Chris Barnes there? I was. Okay. All right. John Shero, your past. Oh, goodness. Where where should we start? Uh, Well, it's kind of checkered, but that's okay. Right. Folks, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm teasing. John John is a former student of mine. And actually, John, I'm... I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember exactly how long ago because it was quite a while. Well, I'll put it into perspective. Um, you may recall that uh, shortly after I finished my thesis, um, I was driving you around parts of South Carolina as you were on your book tour. Oh. So. Okay, so that was 1998. That is correct, sir. Okay. <laughs> All right, and you did get your master's degree in public history. Received a master's degree from USC in public history um, in 1998, and prior to that, um, received a, a master's in English at Clemson and an undergraduate in English and history at Clemson. And you went to work for Historic Columbia almost immediately, did you not? You started as a graduate student. I did. I did. I started in August of 1996. That was my uh, that was my posting as a as a grad student while at uh, USC. And then became fully employed once. I actually became fully employed before I graduated, a, f- a few weeks before I graduated, um, so December of 1998. Okay. When you came on board at Historic Columbia at the turn of the century, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a small staff. You operated four properties. Actually, six. Six? Six properties. Okay. Sure. All right. Let's see if I can All right. Woodrow Wilson. The Wedge Wilson Boyhood Home, the Robert Mills House, the Hampton Preston Mansion, the Man Simons Cottage, the Big Apple, and what was the other one? The Siebel's House. The Siebel's House. So, the, so there was there were six properties. I, I guess I knew the Siebel's House, but I just always considered that the office. That was that's the oldest one in the whole lot. But yes, that's definitely one of our properties. Yeah. So there were there were six properties, uh, but in terms of you know the Siebel's House, is it now interpreted to the public? Or is it, I mean, it is the administrative headquarters. The Siebel's House, um, which is the oldest remaining building in Columbia, uh, dates about uh, circa 1795-96, um, is indeed where Historic Columbia has its administrative offices. It's also a venue for uh, special events, and it has an exquisite garden there. Um, there is interpretation at the site. There's interpretation by way of um, uh, wayside signage that we have uh, that speaks to both the horticultural history um, as well as the uh, the built uh, structures, built history there. Okay. All right. So any more houses now? Or any um, more? Actually, we did end up picking up uh, the stewardship of the Majeska uh, Simpkins site. Uh, that is a city-owned property, um, as is, of course, the Robert Mills house and the Man Simon sites. Those are, uh, those are city-owned. Whereas Richmond County um, owns the Hampton-Preston mansion, and the Museum of Reconstruction at the Woodrow Wilson Family Home. 
What structures does Historic Columbia actually own itself? We only own one structure now, and that is the Siebel's house. Okay. Mm -hmm. Who owns the Big Apple? Um, The Big Apple is privately owned. So that's no longer Historic Correct. So basically, Historic Columbia operates these properties for public entities, Richland County and for the city of Columbia. That is correct. All right. Keith, you're you're director of grounds. Mm -hmm. Back in the 1970s, there was a groundskeeper who was not employed by Historic Columbia, who worked for the county, and basically his job was to keep the lawn mowed at the Robert Mills house. The grounds around the Hampton-Preston house in those days were a wasteland, and this was before the Siebel's house became a became a property. It's interesting, the, the design for the Robert Mills house, you want to comment on those or how they have changed over the time? Well, certainly. I know John is more familiar with the very early days of those changes. So I've been with Historic Columbia now for just over seven years. Uh, and even in my time, we've had a great deal of change. And it's, it's very interesting because each one of our properties is unique, um, obviously in its historic interpretation, but also in its sort of botanical um, interpretation. In fact, we have a living collections policy that is unique for each of the properties. All right. Talk about that for us, a living collections policy. Previous to myself being the director of grounds, um, Evan Clements uh, was a director of grounds and I was a horticulturalist. And uh, together we came to the decision that we'd like to manage the living collections, that is the plants, more like a botanical garden. Uh, and and that's more in line with, with the um, artifact collections as well, such that we could organize our efforts mm-hmm. at each property and, and, and have it more in line with the historic interpretation um, and be able to keep records of everything more in a more organized fashion. Well, for example, I, I do know that the the original gardens around the Robert Mellon's house were designed as a white and green garden. Uh, and it included things like white crepe myrtles, which did not exist when uh, the Robert Mills house was a private <laughs> residence. That, that's correct, yes. So what do, what do you do with something like that? That's, uh, are the white crepe myrtles still there? Uh, there are two uh, still wh- uh, white crepe myrtles right there on the Blanding Street entrance. Um, and we do have a number of, maybe I like to call them legacy plantings. The Macrophylla magnolias? The Magnolia Macrophylla, uh, we do have one at Robert Mills' house, and um, we also have quite a substantial Magnolia Grandiflora planting at, at, at the Hampton-Preston site that is also what I would describe as a legacy planting. Um, uh, you know, there were various efforts throughout the years since the creation of Historic Columbia to install gardens, and previous to, you know, the last eight or ten years, I would say that most of those were, you know, they re- people really were interested to get plantings established um, and to have the site be more presentable, perhaps. And so most of what was chosen, I think, were very hardy, very durable plants to put in and not necessarily from a curatorial perspective. And so that is one of the main things we've been doing in fits and starts, but then more recently, uh, in a more holistic manner, uh, thanks to the Darnell and Susan Boyd Foundation. Okay. I mean, we've been talking about the gardens there at the Robert Mills house, which might have been familiar to a lot of folks because it's has been open the longest. Mm-hmm. And at one point, a centerpiece of that garden was a fountain which had belonged to the Hamptons, I believe a Hiram Powers piece, John? Yeah, that, that's correct. Um, for, uh, for a few years, um, there was what was known as the Hiram Powers Fountain, albeit in a slightly different form. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But that was displayed um, in what was known as the Founder's Garden, which is located in the southwest corner of the uh, Robert Mills grounds. It was most likely established there probably around 1972. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is that's when the Edward Pinckney designed garden um, was installed um, and debuted. But that was also very shortly after the Hampton-Preston site ceased to be used um, as the Midlands Tricentennial mm-hmm. Exposition Center. And it's in that capacity from um, April of 1970 until April of 1971 that visitors to the Hampton-Preston site could have seen what was a essentially a reconstruction of the Hiram Powers Fountain on display in one of the temporary exhibit halls. The, the geodesic domes. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I say that it was a 
portion of the fountain because um, it looked much more like um, a squat kind of birdbath. I never paid it a whole lot of attention uh, because when I came to Historic Columbia in 1996, um, this was really a, a, a gathering of shattered pieces of marble that uh, were in the basement of Hampton Preston. It was in collection storage. Um, the shaft had been uh, broken in half height-wise, and then the basin was, was, was disfigured as well. Um, disfigured both because it had been cracked, but also it had been cracked and repaired and cracked again. Mm. Um, the story uh, that becomes fascinating when I received a telephone call from a lady whose mother had been a student um, at the College for Women, which used to be at the Hampton Preston site. And this lady was moving out of her, out of her house and said that she would like to repatriate a portion of the fountain. And I thought to myself, you know, this is late on a Friday. Um, this person was very energetic and enthusiastic, but I wasn't really sure if the story would hold water, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I started looking at historic photographs that we had, fortunately. Which, and, which photographs and the postcards were from the College of Women, the exactly. Women's College era. Yeah, exactly. And lo and behold, um, you look at the historic photographs and the original fountain was much taller. Um, and indeed, um, her mother had spirited away from a trash pile the upper section of um, the Hiram Powers Fountain when somebody had you know, thrown it away. But the, by that point in 1930, the, uh, the College for Women, I should say Chicora College, because Chicora College merged with the College for Women in 1915. Chicora College moves out of the Hampton Preston site in 1930 and merges with Queens College. Of, in Charlotte. Uh, mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. And so for um, several years, the Hampton Preston site was host to many different tenants, not just the mansion, but also the former dormitories. And it's actually not until 1944 that the Hampton Preston uh, tourist home is debuted. Um, and it serves as a, a a tourist home, an alternative for uh, visitors uh, to Columbia who would not necessarily have gone to um, some of the higher-end hotels. And then it ends up being a boarding house up until uh, it's uh, purchased by the state of South Carolina in 1968. And then ultimately it's a rehabilitation in 1969 for use as the exposition center. Okay. So you've got all these fountains <laughs> and they're Last time I was on the grounds, which was fairly recently, I thought I saw that fountain. Well, you, uh, what you saw um, is a replica. Um, we were very fortunate that the lady who gave us the, um, the remnant uh, of the fountain um, was exceedingly persuasive um, in her efforts to uh, generate funds for its conservation. And so um, Ted Monick, formerly of the State Museum, uh, was a professional conservator, and he meticulously restored the fountain. Um, it was brought back to its uh, original configuration. There were parts of it that had to be, as I said, removed and cleaned, um, in some cases replicated. Um, and ultimately, that conserved fountain uh, was taken to uh, Birmingham, Alabama, where it was three-dimensionally scanned. So you have a 3D model, three-dimensional model, um, that was put into a computer-assisted uh, drawing or design um, software, and a 100% accurate replica was cast in aluminum. And I took that replica uh, down to St. Petersburg, Florida with one of my colleagues at Historic Columbia, and we ended up having three cast stone replicas made by an artisan um, who worked down there. Okay, so... It's one of those in the Founders Garden at Robert yes, Mills. One of and those is. the other two are in Hampton Preston. The other two are in storage. Um, so if anything ever happens to the um, replica that you see out on the grounds, we'll immediately have a backup. And if something happens to that backup, we'll immediately have a third backup. Yeah. But what? you won't see the historic fountain in the gardens ever again. Okay. Gentlemen. We need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with John Shearer and Keith Mearns from the Historic Columbia Foundation. All right, fellas, back back to the grounds. Let's, we've got Robert Mills taken care of. Is there a Woodrow Wilson garden? I don't—I mean, there are grounds, but— That site, um, being a 
Victorian, 1870s Victorian home. We really um, are working to um, have a garden and uh, grounds there that reflects what would have been typically installed. Um, we don't, unfortunately, have any primary source material telling us exactly what was installed. Yeah. But we're we're really fairly certain that it was a sort of a pleasure garden, workyard situation where there's a strict boundary between gardens and areas that are meant for visitors and the public to see and areas that are not okay. meant for them to see. So that, that is the current configuration. Okay. And you've already mentioned, but not talked about the garden at the Siebel's house, which the Siebel's family developed. Yes. That, uh, that particular garden is, um, if you like, our oldest. In fact, uh, the area that has been gardened continuously since it, since the house is creation. That said, most of the mature plantings that you see down there at the Siebel's house come from, come from, I would say, the second quarter of the 20th century or so. We have some very large camellias. Um, the Siebel's family was very involved in the American Camellia Society. And uh, so we have a number of, of excellent large specimens of those. Um, and two deodar cedars down there, which are probably the oldest plants that we have. They're, I would say, at least 100. They are probably the most dependable conifer that we can grow in our gardens, if you like. If you really are into um, that look in your garden, the deodar cedar is one of the best ones because we can't do firs or spruces or anything like that. So, If I'm not mistaken, it was you know with an idea of preserving some of these, these base, well-established trees and bushes um, that served the, as the basis for the current plan uh, that was implemented, designed and implemented by Jinx Farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, goodness, at this point now, maybe... I think that was about 2007, wasn't 2006 it? 2006 or 2007. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a, a generation ago now, <laughs> so, almost. <laughs> so are you putting in native plant materials now? What it, well, there, is some, there are some native plant materials included. Um, uh, you know, the style that was installed at that point is is not a formal style. It's very informal. It's very um, sort of almost uh, subtropical, you would say. A lot of heirloom plantings, some of which are native and some of which are not. Um, you know, one of Jinx Farmer's um, signature plants is the crinum lily or cemetery lily. So we have a lot of those. And we did actually just install a memorial for one of our volunteers um, who passed away last year um, with a new fountain. And that memorial features uh, native plants. Many of the things that people associate with southern gardens are not native. Let's get camellia japonicas, azaleas, exactly. you, know, exactly. you know, gardenias. Anyway, so the Mansama's Cottage Garden. That site does not have essentially hardly any ornamental planting. Um, we do have a one small raised bed there. Um, we have some history with the Wisteria Garden Club uh, caring for that site. So we do have a small garden bed there. We put some flowers in and things. But as uh, John well knows, most of that property was was had buildings. Right, yeah. And so when you go to the Man Simon site um, today, the uh, the site was essentially transformed miraculously in a, in a way that um, I think stimulates people's imaginations to see beyond what just lies above ground. And what I mean by that is if you go to the property today, you'll see a number of what we call um, ghost structures. Um, these are steel framed structures that essentially replicate um, the buildings that formerly stood on the property, some of which were quite proximal to the, the extant uh, Columbia style cottage that we have today. Um, and all of these were owned by members of the man uh, and Simon's families. They were used as residences. They were used as stores. Um, we even have a lunch counter, a uh, walk-up lunch counter that used to stand uh, to the uh, the southwest of the uh, existing um, former residence. Um, and in that um, interpretation, what drove that interpretation was uh, years of um, archaeological excavations that were done by uh, Dr. Jacob Crockett. The, the body of information that was um, gleaned from those investigations was just phenomenal. And one thing that was very interesting in, in some of the uh, research that was done um, in the front uh, front yard of the existing building, uh, there was discovered some pathways and some areas that would suggest small planting beds, which kind of ran current to what we initially thought the front yard um, had looked like. So it's great to see kind of change over time that is recorded, so to speak, in the, uh, in, in the ground. Um, 
I would assume that the the Man Simons family, like all Colombians, black and white, mm-hmm. kept a cow or farm animals in in the yard. My wife grew up on Pendleton Street, and they had chickens. This is in the 1950s. They still had chickens. And just before her coming under the scene in the 1940s, they had had a cow. So, I mean, that's downtown Columbia in the 1940s and 1950s. What I can say from what we um, learned both in the archaeological record as well as um, um, doing some, some research that was more uh, anecdotal and whatnot. Um, there was a chicken there, at least one. There was a pet chicken that appears to have been a pet because of the way it was buried. Um, that was a fascinating uh, discovery. Um, and there was a horse. We know there was a horse. It carried the same name as, as a neighbor. So I don't know exactly what that uh, <laughs> speaks to, but um, that was kind of a, a, a funny um, little discovery. But um, in terms of uh, any kind of um, other animals, we, we didn't find any uh, thing beyond, well, I should say we did find some horseshoes and things of that okay. nature. So, yeah. All right. Let, let's turn now to the Hampton-Preston house and the Hampton-Preston's garden. And Keith, before we get to the garden, the Hampton-Preston house today, its interpretation, uh, John, is quite different from what it was 45 years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely correct. So the Hampton-Preston uh, mansion is a, is a property that today we interpret essentially 1818 all the way up to 1970. And we do that through um, wayside signage that is outside on the grounds, interior reader rails and signage, interpretive signage inside, but also through period rooms as well as period um, vignettes. And it, it takes it all the way up to, as I said, when the, uh, the property essentially um, became open to the public as a historic house museum. All right. The first floor was always traditionally the Hampton family because you had literally had Hampton family pieces, right. that kind of thing. And right. then upstairs. Right. So um, upstairs, um, you, we have today two spaces, really three. We have a, a hallway where we interpret the kind of the transitional period of when the Hamptons leave the property in 1873. So it's that reconstruction era, um, the rebuilding of um, African-American families who were torn apart through slavery. We talk about the emergence of, of, of different schools. Um, so not just uh, the College for Women in 1890, but also the founding of Benedict and Allen during the uh, Reconstruction and, and, and New South period. And then that brings us into a period vignette from 1915 of a dormitory uh, when it was uh, it became Chicor College. Then we go into a space that I, I really do love because it depicts the early 1950s as a uh, as the site was used as a boarding house. Um, and in that, that allows us to not only show show some really cool material culture, much of which is is familiar to you know many visitors because they perhaps lived with some of these items, but it also allows us to broach the issue of segregated spaces. Uh, in terms of tourist homes. because All right, Well, what are those material culture things that us old folks would recognize immediately? Well, um, let's see. We have everything from uh, travel maps, uh, golf travel maps from the 1950s. The set of luggage uh, that you see there actually uh, came from my family. I, uh, it's the luggage that my mom uh, brought with her when they came to Columbia after they were married in the mid-1950s. Uh, which is kind of a, a fun little family thing. We have a wonderful television set uh, that dates to about 1952. How big is it? <laughs> the The viewing portion of it isn't that big, but the rest of it is quite know, large I, with the cathode ray tube. Yeah, probably about four <laughs> feet square. <laughs> it, it's quite substantial. But what's interesting is, and you know, you have these kind of modern trappings, and you juxtapose those with essentially what would be considered kind of secondhand antiques by that point. Because the idea behind the tourist home was a quasi-genteel setting, and that was created with the use of various um, types of quote-unquote antiques. Uh, Four poster beds and that kind of thing. Things of that nature, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Are we ready to move into the garden now? I think so. Okay. <laughs> As I think I said earlier in our conversation, Back in the 1970s, the area around the Hampton-Preston house was basically a wasteland. 
there were attempts to lay out beds based upon plans. And uh, Mm -hmm. Keith, I'm going to turn this over to you because Mm -hmm. as you work with the garden, interestingly enough, we do have detailed drawings and as as well as photographs of the Hampton-Preston Gardens that were created uh, prior to 1860. And they were something of a national phenomenon. Yes. The one thing we don't have, and I wish we did, was direct records from the family with regards to the gardens. We do not have that. But what we do have are really, really fun and interesting um, illustrations. Um, We have a Harper's Weekly that that gives us some really fun illustrations that uh, have varying degrees of accuracy, um, I would say. They like to exaggerate some of the the features that you see. But um, we also have some... What are they? What are mm-hmm. those? What are those features? Other than well, the hedge that's about hedge, twenty. That's mostly what I'm uh, mentioning. Yeah, they, they, there were definitely a lot of hedges in the garden there, um, but the Harper's Weekly makes them look as though they're maybe thirty-five feet tall. Yeah, which is uh, unlikely, very much unlikely. <laughs> and the reason that Harper's Weekly came to be was because um, uh, the site was used, albeit very temporarily, as General John Logan's headquarters during the occupation of Columbia in February of 1865. So this comes out in April of 1865, and we have some illustrations that depict the site at that point. So. Okay. All right. Go on, Keith. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, so um, I will say that our target time frame for the interpretation of the gardens there is 1840 to 1860, um, during the time during which the Hamptons and Preston families would have uh, been actively adding to and overseeing those gardens, um, installation and care. And I, I do like to tell when I give people garden tours, uh, everyone wants to know where are the original trees, where's the old, where are the old live oaks? And I say, well, I'm sorry, unfortunately, there's nothing here older than about 1980, really. So everything that you see there today is, you know, post-dates that time. Uh, additionally, you know, a, a number of things happened to the site, as you, as we have mentioned. Um, it was essentially all removed by, um, what do we say, about the late 40s. The back part of it was our used car lot, was it not? <laughs> well, uh, right. So in 1949, um, Wilson Motors established its very modern new car uh, dealership uh, that fronted Laurel Street. Um, and then by the time it became the, um, the site for the Tricentennial Exposition Center, the business had been selling used cars off of what today would be Pickens Street, fronting Blanding. Oh, okay. Yes. So, um, so that is to say that there there are no original plantings, um, but we do have one really important uh, surviving piece of information, and I would say maybe it was in 1941 or so, mm-hmm. an individual who was stationed at Fort Jackson came over and decided, for whatever reason, to draw sort of a bird's eye view of the garden's pathways and uh, did make some notations as to the plant material he saw and um, remaining sort of dilapidated foundations of a gold glass house and perhaps a gardener's cottage and things like that. So that drawing is what has allowed us to reinstall the pathways as we see them today. Okay. All right. When the colleges went in though and they built the dorms, that mm-hmm. would have intruded into the garden space. So the dormitories um, led to uh, clearly led to the destruction somewhat of the, uh, the garden spaces, but they, uh, they also led to the destruction of the original um, flanker buildings, which would have been home to the enslaved workers uh, who worked there, as well as uh, it was the, they were the location of the kitchen house and the, the laundry and whatnot. All right. Archaeologically, have you located those? Archaeologically, um, we have not located those. However, we did uncover uh, the foundation to one of the dormitories as well as part of the cistern. Uh, there was an 80,000-gallon cistern that used to be on oh. the site. Okay. So as, as Keith works on his garden plan, are there plans to do the ghost buildings just like you did at Man Simon's? There are no plans for um, the ghost buildings there. But that having been said, the archaeological work uh, that preceded some improvements to the rear of the, the mansion helped us to know better and really exactly the footprint of the mid-19th century addition that was put in place between 1848 and 1850. And that was something that the Prestons installed on the north elevation of the original 1818 house. And so today, when people go to this um, essentially a sunken uh, patio, they can see what that footprint looked like. Um, and there's some very clever details that were put in there that people have to come by and see for themselves. And we also, of course, incorporated uh, wayside signage uh, around that portion that talks about the um, gardens. 
as well as um, the various buildings that were there and who worked in them. Okay. Well, let's get back to the gardens, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the first time that any garden was reinstallation was attempted was uh, starting in the early 80s. Uh, the pathways you see on the site now, that is the brick edging that defines them, uh, was installed at that point. And, and a number of the large trees that are on the site currently were planted at that time. Unfortunately, that effort was uh, stalled out and essentially most of the large trees survived and grass was allowed to come back in and cover those pathways again. Um, But luckily they were still there because that leads into how we sort of got to where we are now. I would say probably starting in 2012 or so, some reinstallations began on the site, uh, starting at the um, Blanding Street entrance. And this also sort of started the Boyd Foundation's involvement with the site, and they they uh, funded the renovation of the historic front gate. Restoration. Restoration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. And uh, we also had the Henry Michael Powell Children's Garden came in and allowed us to uh, reinstall garden plantings on the southeast mm-hmm. uh, corner of the site. And then, of course, the uh, southwest corner is the Hiram Powers Fountain Garden. And so those two areas, plus the welcome areas, came in at that point, which we have continued to develop. All right. When you're bringing in plantings, what kind of plantings are you bringing in? Well, it's very interesting. So the children's garden, because we do not have any specific references to that region of the site um, in any way, and because of the unique uh, nature of the, the funds that came in, that that area is designed with children in mind. So the plantings in there are very much about texture and color and playfulness. And Jinx Farmer was also involved in the initial installation of that garden. All right, such as plants. So we actually have an Aspidistra collection in there. And the reason we have that is because I know everyone is very well acquainted with um, Aspidistra elady or the, the, the common cast iron plant, but there are, we have over 20 different cultivars. Well, well, I know some of them are spotted, some of them are striped, mm-hmm. some of them are yellow striped, some of them are white. Oh, yeah. And there's different species and varying sizes. And um, believe it or not, it is it is an exciting addition to the space um, because it's, it's, it's accompanied by various subtropicals, um, various rare um, herbaceous plants um, that have really strange leaves or patterning. So it's a very diverse space. Um, well, you must have enough shade if you've got the Aspidistra. Uh, it's, yes. So that corner of the site, as well as the Huron Powers uh, area, um, both have four large live oak trees. Okay. Um, now we have edited those canopies significantly so that we can grow plants under those trees. I love the term edited. Yes, I like that. It's a good. Term. Yes, so, so I, we did remove a, a lot of the a lot of the low branching so that we could get uh, both light and air movement into the areas. Okay, gentlemen. We need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with John Shearer and Keith Mearns from the Historic Columbia Foundation. In the spring of 2022, you had the grand reopen or the grand opening mm-hmm. of a very important facility, mm-hmm. uh, a garden facility. So let's talk about that and okay. how it came about. Yes. So um, as I mentioned, the Boyd Foundation. Um, has been the principal partner in de- redeveloping and reinstalling the gardens uh, at the Hampton Preston site. Um, and that um, the largest expansion was actually previous to that, in about 2016, 2017, we added about two acres of garden back to that site um, in what we kind of call an arboretum-style planting, um, which is at this point nearing maturity in many aspects. When you say arboretum, and explain that for the... So it's... Um, from what we can gain from various uh, first-person accounts of the site during our target time frame, um, it was a very intimate space, um, and it had a lot of specimen plantings, that is, rare or unique conifers, trees, and shrubs. Um, and as we understand it from those accounts and the pathway configuration, that the Hamptons and Prestons were really interested in this being similar to sort of an Italian estate garden, so, whereas it was not an English landscape this was a very intimate italian garden so that's what we have reinstalled so there's not a lot of herbaceous plant and there's not a lot of annual plantings happening it's pretty much all shrubs and trees but really kind of tight in their spacing such that you get the garden room effect as you go through okay again plant types please sir sure um we have a lot of forsythia 
which we know is important. We have, I would say, um, eight to ten different tea olive cultivars. Oh, wow. Okay, um, all, right. all right. Okay. I think most folks out there might be familiar with what was colloquially called the outhouse. You had a, a tea olive right by the outhouse <laughs> to uh, uh, assist in the uh, natural aromas. Uh, <laughs> but there are ten cultivars. Oh, I mean, then that's and we we're just uh, on the surface, really. Um, it you know, tea olive, Osmanthus fragrans, and a couple other species as well are all native to Eastern Asia, um, and they have selected uh, hundreds. Of, of cultivars there. Now, there are nurserymen in this country who have brought back some of the more interesting ones. Um, different flower colors. For instance, we have one that is almost red in flower color. We have some that have variegated leaves and, and others that when they grow in the spring, the color of the leaf is white and then it changes to red. So we just, we're really trying to infuse diversity and um, exotic. Well, see, that, that sort of fits in with, again, as you said, the concept of bringing in exotic plants, mm-hmm. which the Hamptons and Prestons would have, would have, mm-hmm. would have been doing. Uh, now, do you let, you're bringing in something like the, a, a tea olive. You're not trimming it and shaping it in the English model, are you? No, no, not in that way. Now, we do, abs- everything gets, you know, guided. Um, everything needs to be um, kept in, its, in the bounds you intend for it. But in this style of planting, that's not obvious. Our goal is to keep things where we want them without an obvious shearing. So you, you, don't, you don't make topiary plants out of these? Not out of the tiala, certainly not. Um, it's not out of the question that there were may have been to, you know topiaries here and there within the garden, but certainly not out of tiala. But actually, by the 1840s, those would have been kind of old-fashioned. Well, it would, and that's, and that's what I tell people, is that this garden was, at that time, actually already kind of old-fashioned. So... Um, we do have a lot of other really interesting specimen trees, like monkey puzzle trees. Um, we know those were on the site in the genus Araucaria, um, really interesting conifer. Uh, we actually have um, one of our other sources that we use uh, for the gardens are the catalogs and um, receipts from the Pomerian nurseries. Yes, yes, yes. People forget that one of the earliest large uh, nurseries in the country was in Pomeria, mm-hmm. South Carolina. Yeah, just just north of us in Newberry County. Uh, um, now they specialized in in fruit trees too. So I would, I guess, you could say that they were. If you're going to say what they focused on, yes, I would say that fruit trees they had their highest diversity in. Um, and we have a number of those catalogs are actually available online to, to look at. Um, and by the time you get to 1861, they have a 90 some page catalog. Oh wow! Oh yeah. Um, and uh, while it was focused on the edible plants, um, they did have an extensive ornamental department. Um, they were selling hedges by the foot. So they were, they were growing hedges, clipping them as hedges, and then selling lengths of hedges that were already, <laughs> that could be installed as a hedge. Um, so um, we don't know that the Hamptons purchased those, but we know they were available. That, that doesn't sound like, I don't think they would have been buying it by the yard. Uh, it's also fascinating to think too about um, the earliest stages of the um, uh, the Hamptons and Prestons um, planning that site and knowing that they had the benefit of Robert Russell's garden, which it was at um, un- until the construction of the new state house um, in the 1850s. It was it was a, a huge attraction. So just you know a block away um, from South Carolina College, you had upwards of 50,000 trees that were for sale. Um, at Robert Russell's garden. So yeah, and we are fortunate that we do actually have one plant on the property that is a cutting propagated plant that originated with one of the original plantings at the Pomeray Nursery. So we do actually have an original plant from them um, on the property. Um, and so those two large arboretum style plantings um, led to the Boy Foundation also supporting the sunken patio installation that John uh, spoke about, which led to what we call the final phase of the landscape restoration of Hampton Preston, and that is the Boyd Horticultural Center. All right, now let's talk about and I the Hamptons would have had they had a, a hot house. They did. They had a they had a glass house that was um, on the uh, northwest rear rear wall of the property. Now when you go to the site, our perimeter wall that's on the um, all streets except the Blanding Street is a 20th century installation 
um, the original wall in Junks being where this was actually a large brick yeah. installation. Yeah. So what you see when you go around the property today uh, was installed in 1979 uh, through an open air grant with the federal government. So you needed to be able to visually see what was inside. But historically, you would not have been able to see inside the grounds because there was an eight foot tall brick wall that ran three quarters of the perimeter of the. Is, of is the there state. any is there any consideration of eventually recreating that? We don't have that in our plans. Okay, yeah, not okay. In our plans. Um, so yes, they did have a glass house, um, and uh, we actually one of the um, firsthand accounts of the site compares the Hamptons glass house to the quote unquote the one in Washington, in D.C. Um, and so I did a little research, looking into well what was in D.C. at that time, and it turns out that the only glass house officially operated up there at that point was under the jurisdiction of the patent office. Um, and there is actually a photograph of the of the old patent office, uh, which that building is still there. It's not the patent office anymore. Um, there is a glass house just behind it. Um, and that just kind of confirmed what we thought the Hamptons house probably looked like. Um, and it was a, a three-quarter span structure. That is, if you can imagine a glass greenhouse with a pitched roof, the, the roof comes up. It's glass on the south elevation. It goes up to the peak and then goes down the other side and meets the brick wall. So the brick wall is the north wall of the structure. And the reason for that was obviously um, at that point, heating a structure like this would have been a considerable effort. And if you can build it up against a brick wall, you're capturing a lot of solar energy in the winter, which is radiated to the plants at night. So the solar energy using that brick wall, mm -hmm. the brick wall you've created now is a brick wall, right? Well, um, the structure we have now interprets that original structure in its overall design. However, it is a multi-use structure for us. Um, and so, a much larger structure. And it's much, yeah. yes, thank you. Yeah. It's much larger than what would have originally been there, yeah. <laughs> um, mostly because of the uses we, we really wanted to have for the, for the building. All right, now... Historic Columbia had a big plant sale this spring. Are you you have a garden that you're sharing historic plants with folks? Of course, um, you know for we propagate obviously for our own efforts, um, not just to fill our gardens and to back up, quote unquote, some of the more important specimens that we have, but that capacity allows us to have more than we need for those those needs. Um, and part of this, the Boyd Horticultural Center. Uh, part of that project was actually an outdoor nursery space. So the space that's directly opposite from the new building is an outdoor nursery space that uh, we can use for all those efforts. And, and we will be having two plant sales a year to benefit Historic Columbia and our grounds. So what kind of, what kind of plants are you? Uh, so everything that we sell is going to be represented somewhere on one of our properties, not necessarily just the Hampton Press property, but on one of our properties. And so we will principally be propagating from our existing collections to to create these plants. So, so for example, are you going to propagate the red tea olive? Yes. Now that's going to be a little that's going to be a little bit ways off because they're kind of slow, but but <laughs> yes, you are correct. We will be doing plants that you cannot find here in Colombia that you would have to go to specialty nurseries and things like that to find it all. So we'll be doing everything that we can to bring either rare or important or otherwise um, um, interesting plants um, to the public. And one of the things I'll add to this is um, not only can people you know, purchase a plant or plants, uh, we hope a lot of plants, um, but they can also go online and access the information, the curation information uh, through our online plant database um, that Keith and um, his predecessor uh, created. And so you have a wonderful history of how these plants um, throughout all of our properties have been taken care of over the past you know, 10 years plus to some degree. Mm -hmm. Well, if you go to, to the Hampton Preston property now because it's more than just the mansion that's mm -hmm. that's just part of the story that's right. do you go used to go to the front door of the mansion and knock on it now you have an entrance on uh Pickens street is that the is that the entrance to the property now well you can access um the hampton preston's four acres um through essentially three main ways 
For those of you who perhaps are uh, purchasing a ticket um, and want to see the interior of the house, you've come from the Robert Mills house where our museum shop is, you've walked across Blanding Street, and you've walked through kind of the formal entrance um, to the uh, to the property. Um, but you don't need to buy a ticket to enjoy the gardens at any of our properties. And so you can go through the front gates, you can go through the pedestrian gate, uh, which today features um, uh, a reinterpretation and a, a reconstruction um, of a, a summer house. Uh, some people call it a gatehouse, but it's a summer house, a rustic structure that would have been there. We know it was there. Um, and still others like to come um, you know, down the sidewalk on Laurel Street and walk through the rear gates uh, because they're so captivated by the Boyd Horticultural Center uh, and the greenhouse. Um, so it's uh, uh, it's really amplified access to the property whereas before just you know a year ago or so um, you could only access the property through the front gates and i will add too that because of um, our interest in sharing these grounds we have extended hours Um, so during the course of the week we do offer extended hours uh, for people to um, come see the properties um, after work and whatnot okay and it's been a boon for um, us as far as getting Historic Columbia's um, mission out to folks, um, you know, understanding that horticulture is, um, is, is hand in glove with telling local history uh, and with historic preservation, um, looking holistically at the historic sites under our care, but also looking holistically at how our city and our county has evolved. All right. Uh, so what's next, guys? That's a great question. I think um, for the property, there's never a lull. We're constantly um, finding out more information about the various people who who worked there and who lived there um, throughout all of the various uh, generations. Um, I think for me, as as the longest-serving employee at Historic Columbia, the next thing is just to see how magnificent the gardens are going to look this coming up next season. And what I mean by that is every season, the gardens look different. And mm-hmm. um, Keith impressed upon me just a couple of years ago that this garden will will improve and mature gracefully and, mm-hmm. and drastically um, in the coming years. And it's not disappointed. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. We, do, we, we did design the planting such that they will age. So we're not, you know, this is so many plantings these days are put in because they, everyone wants them to look the way they look instantly. But this one was designed such that it's going to look good for you mentioned You mentioned Forsythia, Spirea mm-hmm. would have been another plant. Yes, we have that. Absolutely. So, I mean. And, and believe it or not, Pomeroy Nurseries even sold coast, coast redwood. And we have a coast redwood in the garden now. Wow. So, <laughs> many, yeah. A lot of things to look forward to. And and another thing, too, and um, is that there are folks who uh, volunteer with Historic Columbia. As you know, uh, Walter, they always have. Um, that we, That's the lifeblood of, of any nonprofit. Um, but there are folks, there are devotees to the gardens who work year-round mm-hmm. with Keith and his fellow staff members um, to make sure these properties are well-curated, well-taken-care-of, and very presentable. Yes. Um, well, t- taking care of any garden is a never-ending <laughs> task. That's right. You know, I really do need to mention that, um, you know, myself, my predecessor, and John, and everyone else at Historic Columbia has had ideas for these gardens for a long time, and we had a cult- we have a cultural landscape master plan that we developed in in coordination with Jim Cothran, and really all those efforts um, being present. And then with the help of the Boyd Foundation, especially um, Susan Boyd, has a, an, she's an excellent gardener. She has an excellent understanding of scope and scale and what you need for a garden. And, and so it's really not just about their financial support, but it's about them understanding the goals and, of and, the project. And she got involved by being a member of the Garden Steering Committee, Garden Restoration Steering Committee. So, mm-hmm. you know, groups of people who uh, or a group of people who were able to look at that strategic vision of implementing the various gardens under our 14 acres um, and invest uh, a great deal of, of, of energy and time and, um, and indeed, of course, with the Boyd Foundation uh, financial support. Yeah. To- well, I hate to do it, fellas, but Alfred's given me the wind-up sign. So um, I ask 
my guests for any last word, and I'll start with you, Keith. Any last words before we sign off today? Um, I'm very excited for the potential that these improvements have made. Um, this Board Hero Cultural Center and our new nursery is going to allow us to do so much more in the coming years. So I would invite everybody to follow us and keep up with us because we're going to have a lot of exciting things coming down the pipe. All right. Great. John? Well, as you know, um, having been my thesis uh, director uh, while at the University of South Carolina, um, we have 25 years of history that I have to uh, kind of not rewrite, but add on to that thesis because that was a comprehensive history of the Hampton-Preston site up until 1998. And yeah. so there's a lot of work that's been done. There's a lot of accomplishments that have been had. And, I shudder to think about uh, that. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> Thank you so very much. Oh, it's our pleasure. All right, John Shearer and Keith Mearns, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. As many of you know, I have been associated with Historic Columbia for about 45 years now. And seeing the evolution and the transformation of those properties, particularly in the last 10 to 15 years, has been absolutely heartwarming, especially the grounds. What they have done particularly with the support of the Boyd Foundation on the Hampton Preston Gardens, have created a treasure not just for the city of Columbia, but for the state of South Carolina. And all of that, historic gardening, historic preservation, they're an important part of the history of our state. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.